All right, so we'll read Zechariah chapter 5. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It is a basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, This is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Thanks, Jody. Good evening, everyone. If you haven't met me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great to be with you tonight as we continue our series in this Old Testament book of Zechariah. Uh, a special welcome if you are visiting with us the first time tonight or if you're joining us via the live stream. Um, just a quick reminder, uh, we do a podcast week by week uh, called Deeper. And if you have questions that either come out of tonight or out of the series in general, then please contact Kate in the office and we will try to answer them in that podcast. Now, tonight we're up to chapter 5, which contains the sixth and seventh part of the, this eight-part vision that Zachariah was given, meaning that next week we'll finish the vision and then move on to the next section in Zechariah. But tonight we're going to think further about the message of hope that was given to returned exiles, people that had been taken away from their homeland. They'd come back, and now what was their hope? A message that remains God's word to us today. As always, we need God's enabling if we're going to understand and respond to it appropriately. So will you pray with me now? Lord God, we do thank you for the book of Zechariah. Uh, hopefully over the weeks as we've been looking at it, people have found uh, that although it's tricky and there's some strange images in there, there's actually some incredibly great encouragement for us in our situation here in 2022 Wollongong. And so as we look at this next section tonight, we ask again that you would enable us to understand what it meant to its original readers, what it still means for us now, and by your spirit, enable us to put it into practice so that you'd be glorified through the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits, and may your arms be too short to scratch. It's a curse made famous by Johnny Carson, the TV chat show host in the States. Together with stories like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, I think they result in the common belief that curses are nothing more than imaginary. Curses are magical words 
that are in are able to inflict bad results on someone in the land of make believe. And while there probably are some times that we might wish that we had that power in real life, we know that it's beyond us. Now combine that with a flying scroll resembling a giant flying carpet and winged women flying away with a basket, and all the images in chapter 5 seem to place us firmly in the realm of fantasy and make-believe. Maybe this is just about entertainment which I think is why it's so important to recognise at the outset that these are pictures with a message. God let Zachariah see these images with the goal of communicating something which is incredibly important. Rather than just saying it in words, so critical is this message that it requires the use of what to us are very strange images, which I think leaves us with the obvious question, What message is so important that it's pictured as a flying scroll and a flying basket? Chapter 5 obviously breaks down neatly into these two parts, verses 1 to 4, the flying scroll, verses 5 to 11, the flying basket. But what is their message? Well, verse 1 begins with Zachariah seeing a flying scroll. Zachariah is asked what he sees, and he answers that he sees a giant scroll almost as long as the stage is wide and about as wide as it is long. Now, unlike the last vision, Zachariah is not even expected to know what he is seeing. Rather, he is told that this is a curse going out over the whole land. Now, while we might visualise it as something like a flying carpet, remember that for those in Zachariah's time, a scroll was used to write on, especially write down the words of God. And so for us, this might be like seeing a a giant Bible flying along in the sky or perhaps a 10 by 5 metre traffic fine floating around looking for someone to land on and punish. Because that's what the image is intended to communicate. To be cursed, as the Bible uses the word curse, is to receive the consequences of rebellion against God. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says that the punishment for ignoring God's way is that all the curses written in this book will fall on them and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. Rather than receiving God's favour, his blessing, all the good things that he desires to give his people, cursed ones receive his punishment. But I think that the cause of this cursing may cause us a little bit of surprise. On one side of the scroll is written, every thief will be banished. On the other side, every false witness will be banished. Why pick these two particular types of sin? Well, there are a range of opinions as to why they're included. One of the most popular suggestions is that they represent the breaking of the Ten Commandments and by implication, breaking of all of the law. According to that thinking, to be a false witness is to sin against God. To steal is to sin against our neighbour. I think the weakness in this view is that neither lying in court or stealing are examples that bring to mind immediately Jesus' much later and famous summary of the whole law as love for God and love for neighbour. So another possibility 
is that the chosen sins demonstrate that all sin is equally bad. Many consider stealing or lying in court as pretty low on the ranking of severe sins. Thieves are a blight on society and they deserve punishment. But I think most people would agree that a violent criminal is far worse than a thief. False witnesses lack integrity and they they annoy us that they won't tell the truth. But they're not the ones who held the gun or kidnapped the child. So it's possible that this vision is saying in pictures that even little white lies are bad and taking things that don't belong to us will lead to our punishment. In line with Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're told that all rejection of God's ways is evil, not just the sins that are considered really shocking by our society. But while both of those suggestions contain some truth, I think that the primary reason that these two particular sins are highlighted is because of the impact that they would have had at the time that Zechariah was speaking these words. Stealing in the place where recently returned exiles were living, were were trying to get established again, would have resulted in neighbours being suspicious of each other. To lie in court cases would have resulted in wicked people getting away with their sin, with righteous people being cheated, and then there'd be lack of trust in the judicial system. Rather than building community, people's selfishness would have destroyed the thing which was most important to be building at the time. But even deeper, beneath the crass self-interest, is revealed the foundational false views of God that enabled these wicked actions and beliefs to take place. Stealing rejects the goodness of God, ignoring his promise that he will provide all that his people need. Stealing is to assume that all things are yours, as if you were God and could determine which ones you'd like. Swearing falsely is to ignore the authority that belongs to God and decide for yourself what is right and wrong. It is to live as if God does not exist, as if humans were God and can decide for themselves. But when the exiles, Israel, returned back to the promised land, They couldn't live with such wrong understandings of God and wrong understandings of who they were. There simply was not room in town for two gods. Now that God had moved back to Jerusalem and was having his house rebuilt there, those who didn't recognise who he is needed to get out of town. And so the message of a flying scroll is either positive or negative depending on how you relate to God. If you think that you can get away with leaving him out and choose for yourself how you want to run your life, then then the scroll is a big flying threat. On the other hand, if you live for God, this is a promise that he is not going to let rebels get away with their disobedience forever. For a struggling community, there was a press from the outside that had problems from inside. This was a great encouragement. For people returned recently from the exile, it would have been really easy to look at those who were cutting corners and become jealous of them. But this vision assured them that the prosperity of the wicked is short-lived because God is going to enact his curse. He's going to punish the liar and the thief as they deserve. Because he is back in Jerusalem, 
then justice has come. Which I think that we can be encouraged by, even though we are not returned exiles. It's just as easy for us to look at those who ignore God and see how good their lives are and be jealous of what they have. To hear, as we did last week, of Mark Zuckerberg-type stories and, and dream of being so lucky. And as a result, be tempted to bend the rules just a little bit to ensure that we get what we want. Why is it that those who leave God out of their lives are often the ones with the good job and the nice house? Why do they get the overseas holidays and the, the perfectly behaved kids? Who hasn't looked at their neighbour's new car or the renovations and thought that we're more deserving of those good things? Why did that neighbour get it? I've certainly watched others take jobs or promotions that I thought I was more capable of filling. And while sometimes that will be nothing more than sinful jealousy, and we should repent of it, there are times when it does seem that people get away with being ungodly, that those who try to walk in God's ways miss out because they walk in God's ways. And on those occasions when we are walking in God's ways and yet things still seem stacked against us, a giant flying scroll says to us, sure, their life might look great, but their current ease and prosperity is not the end of the story. For those who get ahead by disobeying God, a curse is coming and it's going to crush their house. Wherever God makes his home, all opposing homes will be destroyed. Zachariah's vision of hope says, press on with living God's ways. Don't give up just because it doesn't look like things are working out. As Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 say, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. That's the hope that Israel was expected to have. They didn't have it yet, but it was promised that it was coming. Which leads then into verses 5 to 11. And while these verses use a very different picture, I think we'll see that it continues with a very similar message. This time the angel tells Zechariah to look, and Zechariah, rather than the angel, asks, what is it? The angel, obvious answer, well, it's a basket. But immediately it's explained that the basket represents the iniquity of the people throughout the land. The basket, or ephah, was used to measure a set amount of grain. You could go to the shops and buy an ephah of grain. And so the implied message is that the iniquity of the land has been collected and the basket is full to the brim. But there's a surprise for Zachariah because when the lid's taken off, it contains a woman. She is wickedness. Wickedness is immediately pushed back down into the basket and two other women with wings like a stork lift the basket between heaven and earth, the same place the flying scroll had hovered in the previous part of the vision. Zechariah asks where they're taking it, and the angel answers to Babylonia to build a house for it. And when the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Now, again, the Old Testament background is essential for us to understand what is and isn't being pictured here. 
Proverbs has already personified both folly and wisdom as women. And so in a very similar way, this is not saying that women are more wicked than men. Rather, the basket and the woman inside are a kind of parody of the Ark of the Covenant. In the Old Testament, God could not be seen, and yet his presence was represented by an ark, a box, a golden box, called the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept in the temple. Two enormous cherubs with wings spread out stood behind the ark. The temple, where all of this was placed inside, was the house for the ark, located in Jerusalem. Now, prior to Zechariah's vision, wickedness had been living and ruling in Jerusalem as an alternate God. But now that the one true God has returned, she has to leave. What is not as clear in the translation as it is in the original is the emphasis on movement. Verse 5 says, what is this that is going out? Verse 6, this is an ephah going out. And verse 9, two women were going out. It's emphasised over and over that wickedness is going out, that it is being removed from Jerusalem to somewhere else. Michael Stead uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Zechariah, and he says, Zechariah 5, 5 to 11, depicts an anti-ark borne by anti-cherubs to be put in an anti-temple in an anti-Jerusalem, meaning that now that the real God is here, all pretenders are removed. As a house is to be built for God in Jerusalem, so another house, verse 11, will be built for wickedness and she will be set there like an idol in a pagan temple. And so this strange vision is again an encouragement that God will remove the wickedness from the place where he dwells. Having returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, it would have been incredibly distressing for the people that wickedness was still in the promised land. The whole reason that they had been kicked out was because of their wickedness. If wickedness is still there, are we going to get kicked out again? And so they were worried and scared. And yet this is a promise that wickedness will be removed. And so I think as we hear acts of wickedness, the senseless shooting of school kids, the wars in the Ukraine and Myanmar and Afghanistan, the political scandals in our own land, we also long for wickedness to be removed, that wrongs would be righted, that the proud would be humbled, that the underdog topple the tyrant for, for good to defeat evil. Everyone, even those that don't believe in God, have a deep yearning within us that sees the injustice and the mess in our world and we want it fixed. And that longing is here in Zechariah 5, given a tick of approval. But more than just a tick of approval, it is promised that our longing will be fulfilled by God coming to town. With God's arrival, the wicked are bound and carried away to their rightful place, where they can no longer cause trouble to God's people. And so the encouragement for God's people in Zechariah's time is to get on with building the temple, to welcome God back to the land, to, to rejoice in the fact that he's going to live amongst them and, and remove wickedness from the land. They would have fanned into fire that longing 
that Jerusalem, the city of peace, is what its name means, would have their king reign in peace from his glorious temple. And so hopefully the parallel to our own situation should be clear. It is right and appropriate for us to long for Jesus' return when he will right all wrongs, when God will dwell with humanity, not just for a lifetime, but for an eternity, when in the words of Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so what message is so important that it's pictured as a flying scroll and a flying basket? It's the message of hope, that God sees all the wrong that is being done and he's going to establish justice. And like returned exiles trying to put down roots in the promised land, so we are challenged to trust God that he will do exactly what he has promised to do, to keep on serving him, obeying him, loving others while we wait for him to come back, inviting people to put their trust in Jesus and so become, in the words of 1 Corinthians, part of the dwelling place of God on earth. Flying curses and flying baskets may make the unsuspecting think that this is nothing but entertainment. But for those with ears to hear, it tells us how the hope of all humanity is to be fulfilled when God comes to live with us again. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the book of Zechariah, which gives us an incredible insight into the hope that you gave your people in a time long ago and a long way from us. It wasn't easy for them to hear this word when there was so much trouble, when there were things that were going bad, when it looked like other powers were going to remain in control and keep things going in a bad direction. And yet your people would have hope. They were to act, build your house. They were to love others, invite others to come in and live your ways. And so we've been given an example that this too is how we are to live, that we're people who have had it made so much clearer because the hope which enables that to be fulfilled has already come. Jesus has died in our place. He is the new dwelling of God with man and he's promised that he is coming soon. Lord, enable us to hang on to your promise and act on it appropriately. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.